This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. What kind of a peace do we see? Not merely peace for Americans, peace for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. The flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died some 38 minutes ago. Here is a suspect, 24-year-old Lee H. Oswald. I'm just a patsy. President. Who actually fired the shots that killed Kennedy? Was there a conspiracy? In the years since the Warren report, there is now so much more that we know. Conspiracy theories are now conspiracy facts. The Warren Commission successfully deceived the public Alan Dulles's appointment to the Warren Commission is one of the great frauds of American history. Documents are withheld by the FBI, the CIA. Intelligence agencies did all the wrong things if they were looking for conspiracy. We will go back and piece together new facts and evidence that shed more light on what really happened here that day. Commission believe that the same bullet that hit Kennedy hit Conley. Well, I don't believe it. It is indeed a magic bullet. Oswald was a figure of interest for four years before the assassination. They were reading his mother's mail. His first year in office, Kennedy made many enemies. He vows he's going to shatter the CIA into a thousand pieces. Have you ever committed any act of violence? He was intimately involved in the cover-up. Once you kill a president on the streets of American City, that sends a signal. The rights of every man are diminished when the rights of one man are threatened. If America really wants a democratic society, then we should get to the bottom of this dramatic crime that continues to reverberate throughout American history. This nation will not be fully free until all its citizens are free. All right, and thanks for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed basement with a simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. That was, uh, well, that was the uh, trailer for the 
new film, the new documentary film, JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass, directed by Oliver Stone, 30 years after Stone stirred the pot with the Oscar-nominated drama JFK, starring Kevin Costner as New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison. Stone is back at it again and doubling down. And uh, this is, again, JFK Revisited, written by James DiEugenio. And uh, Jim is here for the full two hours. The documentary is informed by revelations uncovered from the nearly two million pages of documents that were declassified by the Assassination Records Review Board. And the public remains largely unaware of many of the conspiracy facts buried in these two million pages. And Jim D. Genio uh, is here to share some of those conspiracy facts with us tonight. He has an MA in Contemporary American History from California State University, Northridge. He's also a specialist in the history and theory of cinema, and he's written numerous film reviews. He's one of the foremost researchers into the major assassinations of the 1960s. His first book, Destiny Betrayed, was an in-depth look at the Garrison investigation. In 1993, he co-founded both Citizens for Truth about the Kennedy assassination and the following year, the Coalition on Political Assassinations. Along with Lisa Pease, he co-edited the uh, journal Probe magazine from 1993 to 2000 and later assisted in a compilation of the Probe articles, which was published as The Assassinations. In response to Vincent Bugliosi's Reclaiming History and associated film Parkland, Eugenio published Reclaiming Parkland, a critique of Bugliosi's uh, methodology, evidence, and findings in the Kennedy assassination. Jim was a guest commentator on the anniversary issue of the film JFK, re-released by Warner Brothers in 2013. And again, most recently, Jim worked alongside and wrote uh, for, for Oliver Stone's new documentary, JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass. Jim, welcome back. How are you? How are you doing, Richard? Thanks for having me back. We should mention that uh, up here in Canada, uh, JFK Revisited will, will be on a Showtime which I believe is Bell TV's Crave. It's on uh, Bell's Crave TV up here in Canada. So that's tomorrow. Just about everybody in Canada can see the film tomorrow. Okay. And uh, let me ask you, first of all, what it was like working with Oliver Stone up close, side by side working on this project was is he i'm guessing he's a real uh, he seems like a very intense individual uh, a perfectionist what was it like working with him well there were two fa- well actually three there were three phases to putting this thing together with Oliver there was first the screenplay okay working on the screenplay the screenplay went through Although it says it's it's based on my book, it's not really based on my book. It was really an original screenplay, all right? And that went through six drafts, okay? And it took about, I'd say, five or six months to go ahead and finish that screenplay. That was step one. Then step two was the actual production of the film, which Oliver wanted me on the set, to make sure nobody made any mistakes, all right? So I had we went through about five or six cities in about two weeks, 
okay, in order to go ahead and shoot the film. All the see the the backbone of the film, and you've seen it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. In this version, a two-hour version, there's 23 interview subjects. Okay. No film on this case has ever had the quantity and the quality of interviewees that this film had, okay? And so we had to go. It was cheaper, actually, to go back and interview them than it was to fly them all out to L.A., okay? And so in the four-hour version, which will come out in February, there's actually like 29 interview subjects, all right? And so that was the second part, the actual production of the film. And then, of course, was editing the film, all right? And we ended up, let me see if I get this right, with three editors and three assistant editors. It took over a year and a half, more like two years, to edit this thing because we had so much film. When, when you interview that many people, you end up with about 48 hours of film, which I had to read every single transcript, okay, to help our editors put it together. But, you know, it's such a well-made picture. You know, we had Bob Richardson, a three-time Oscar winner, do the photography, which turned out to be a great stroke of brilliance on Oliver's part. I think this is the most beautifully photographed documentary I've ever seen. All right. And then we had a, a guy named Kurt Matilia who came in to do the last two-hour version, and he edited it together. And I think it has a beautiful flow to it for such a complicated subject. All right. Now, as far as working with Oliver, you know, I don't know how this guy ever got this reputation because Oliver of being simply, difficult. Reputation he, of being difficult, he, you mean? Well, to me, it, it really wasn't like that. He just, he's, he's, a, he's a very bright guy, so he asked a lot of questions. So when we were doing the drafting of the screenplays, okay, he would ask me questions, okay? He, and he would double-check on things, and he would say, can you get a better source for that? So I had to find a better source for something I wrote, okay? You know, and that process went on for months on end. Me and Rob Wilson, the producer, you know, would drive out to Oliver's home, okay? And we would sit there for three or four hours, okay, and go over the current draft of the script, all right? And so if you want to say he's exacting, if you want to say that, He's very uh, meticulous. Yes, but, you know, I, I, I don't find that being difficult. But okay? so are you, Jim. I just so find you. that, you know, You're I meticulous. kind of appreciate that. I kind of like somebody yeah. who pushes me. Okay. You know, and so, you know, I kind of, you know, about 90% of the time, I thought it was a pleasant experience. You know, see, the, the, the only difference I have with Oliver, he... He likes to edit film, okay? He can sit in a chair for six hours, okay, and edit film. Personally, I don't like that. I don't like the editing part of, of, of making movies, okay? 
you know. And, it, and I've said this to him before. I said, if I ever get to direct a movie, I'm going to come in like maybe twice a week and look at what the guy has, make some suggestions, and then leave. But Oliver is not like that. He's, in, in essence, he's really the supervising editor on his right. films. Right. Okay. All right. Well, a lot of directors feel that's where the you know the movie you know sort of really comes together in editing for them. Uh, but let, let me ask yes. you: Did did Oliver Stone ever say to you after getting to know you and and reading your your work and and working alongside you? Did he ever say to you, Jim? I wish I knew you back in '91 when I made the movie JFK. It would have been totally different. Yes, he did say. <laughs> he actually did say that. Okay. And I think it's because of my book, uh, The JFK Assassination. See, Reclaiming Parkland was retitled to JFK Assassination, The Evidence Today. Okay. He has that book in his office. Okay. And he gives it to people who come in. All right. His former secretary, Janet Lee, uh, when I first met her, she said, Jim, you should have seen Oliver with your book. Okay. He went through it every page, underlined things, dog-eared the pages, okay, and now he gives it to everybody who comes into the office, all right? Okay, and so he, he really liked that book, and he, and he said, you know, more than one occasion, you know, if I would have known about this book back in 1991, I just would have referred that, my critics to the book, okay? <laughs> right, right. Um, what if, what if you had, I mean, I know now this is, it may sound silly, but, you know, going back in time and getting a chance to, to work with Garrison, I mean, knowing what you know now, how would that case have turned out differently? Oh, well, the prosecution of Clay Shaw, in retrospect, was kind of a lost cause simply because in my other book, Destiny Betrayed, the second edition, okay, don't get the first edition, get the second edition, I revealed just how determined the CIA was to derail that prosecution. And I detailed it from the creation of the Garrison Group in 1967 all the way through 68, and then during the trial. They even were harassing his witnesses during the trial process. You know, it, if it would have been me, I would advise him not to do it, because it was such a hopeless endeavor. Okay, today, of course, if you saw the film, mm -hmm. we know that Clay Shaw lied his head off, okay, about not being associated with the CIA. You know, Clay Shaw had three clearances with the CIA, you know. Uh, he did a lot of work for them going all the way back to the early 50s, you know. And on top of that, he lied, if you read my book, you know, he lied about several other issues, okay, about not knowing David Ferry, about not knowing Lee Harvey Oswald, about not being up in Clinton Jackson, you know. And there was such a coordinated attack on Garrison's prosecution that, you know, it was kind of a, a kind of a hopeless case. You know, I, I, it's very unfortunate because I think today it's pretty clear 
that Shaw did have a role in all this, all right? And it went way beyond what Oliver put in his, um, put in his film, okay? Um, I can go into that, for example, the whole thing about Clinton Jackson, the Clinton Jackson incident, 125 miles north, uh, northwest of New Orleans, where Oswald is seen with Clay Shaw and David Ferry. There's also the whole leafleting thing in front of the International Trademark, in which his assistant and himself knew that Oswald had made a terrible mistake a week before on Canal Street by printing Guy Bannister's office number, okay, on one of those pamphlets he was handing out, okay, because his assistant, Jesse Core sent it, he picked one up, sent it to the FBI and arrowed and folded over, you know, directions, see the next to last page. So here's my question. How could he have known about that if he didn't know who Guy Bannister was? All right? So, yes, I think, in my opinion, uh, with what we know today, it'd be a much stronger case. Back then, I think it was kind of hopeless. You know, it was kind of a heroic act by Garrison, but it is, he was simply not going to win. Uh, I do want to get into into um, CE399 because, you know, without that magic bullet, I mean, that's really what so much of the, the Warren Commission uh, case rests on, uh, that without, without the magic bullet, without a single bullet, you know, all of those, what were there, seven non-fatal wounds sustained by both men, you know, how else can they be explained except for a second shooter? Uh, so we, I, mm-hmm. I, and, and the film, you spent a lot of time on CE399. Uh, but before we get to that, because we're coming up on a break, I just want to ask you something that's always, I've always wondered about. In uh, the movie JFK, they go into the morgue and they take Oswald's dead hand and they put it on the rifle, the Menlikar-Carcano rifle, to get the the, uh, the handprint on the weapon. Do you think it actually happened that way? It, it was, well, it was pretty close, Okay. Because the guy who was running that mortuary, okay, uh, they interviewed him on the men who killed Kennedy. And he said the FBI did come in, okay. They wouldn't let him into the room when they were there. But he did notice that when they left, there was ink all over Oswald's dead hand. Wow. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Pretty Amazing. bad, huh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, one more thing, and that is the parade route. There's been kind of conflicting theories on this as to whether they did, in fact, uh, change the parade route last minute in order to, you know, f- for this triangulation for for uh, the motorcade to be, you know, driven into this death trap, as it were. Was the parade route changed at the last minute, yes or no? According to the Dallas police, it was. The, the night before, they had to bring in the motorcycle escorts to, and told them, we have to go by the new parade route. And they went ahead and they followed the new parade route just to make sure what they were doing. But beyond that, they even stripped back the number of motorcycle escorts. Okay? It was cut by about one-third. And one of the guys said at the after, he goes, you know, that was the craziest motorcycle escort I've ever seen in my life. 
because when you look at the films, you know, Kennedy's wide open from the side. Okay, and of course, everybody's seen the film where they call off the guy who's supposed to be riding on the back bumper. Right. I mean, you, you know what I'm talking about, right? Yes, yes. At Love Field, they called the guy off. I think his name um, was Lawton. Okay, and you can see him looking, what are we doing? You know? And that's, that's perhaps why Fletcher Prouty was flown off in that wild goose chase to uh, the Antarctic, because that would have been his job, right? To make sure there was sufficient security around Kennedy in Dallas. Well, he, he was what they call the procurer. He was supposed to go ahead, and uh, if there were any complaints or anything like that, okay, um, he was a guy who was supposed to contact someone, you know, that kind of a thing. All right, he wasn't really involved with the actual Secret Service, okay? All right, um, that was a bit of dramatic license, all right? But that whole thing about him going to the South Pole is so, uh, it's so mind-boggling, okay? I mean, why that was done at that precise moment, you know, uh, that's, that's absolutely accurate. Lansdale sent him to the South Pole. Okay, on on, and he still couldn't figure to. He never could figure out why Lansdale did that because Lansdale wasn't even his commanding officer. Victor Krulak was. Okay. Hmm. All right. We'll take a quick time out, Jim, and uh, continue to commemorate the 58th anniversary of the murder of the 35th president, JFK. Jim D. Eugenio wrote the uh, the screenplay for JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass, which airs uh, tomorrow night, showtime up here in Canada. That's Crave TV on Bell, Crave TV. All right, back with more of our conversation in a mere moments. Stay with us. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Jim DiEugenio is with us, and we're talking about the uh, the latest Oliver Stone film. Well, it's Jim's film, too. Uh, it's JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass, and it uh, airs tomorrow night on Showtime up here in Canada on Crave TV. So let's, uh, before we talk about CE399, this is the magic bullet, let's talk about the magic bullet theory, the brainchild of the Warren Commission lawyer, Arlen Specter, who would later become the senior senator from Pennsylvania. Now, what did he come up with that on his own? Did he get help? Do we know the actual who actually pieced together the magic bullet theory? Well, Specter did it in its final form. There were people on the commission who were actually talking about it. Okay, see, because the commission was stuck with a three bullet scenario. Okay. All right. And that was it, because if they declared more than that, there would have then it obviously would have had to be a conspiracy because there were three shells found at the scene. OK, and they weren't going to go any further than that. All right. And so they were stuck with this. And so early on, I think Bellin and Ball, two of the uh, junior lawyers, said something like, you know, something um we might have to uh, 
somehow come up with one bullet going through both men. But it was really Specter who then completed that idea in April, okay, of 1964. And there was two reasons they did this. One was the tag hit. Should I explain that? Yes. The, okay. The tag hit was, according to the Warren Commission, Oswald fired a shot that completely missed the car. And it, <laughs> not only did it miss the car, it went on to a different street, Commerce Street, okay, which is next to Elm, all right? And it ricocheted off the curb, and it wounded James Tag in the face, all right? Okay, so that's one shot. So you're down to two shots. And right. you have to explain, you know, all the wounds in Kennedy and Conley plus the fatal headshot. Right, seven non-fatal so, wounds plus the headshot. Right, with two bullets. <laughs> right. So you're down to two bullets. And the other thing is there was a timing problem. Okay, the timing between uh, the, uh, I think it's the first and second shots, was too close, okay, because the FBI tested a rifle and said it was 2.3 seconds, okay, but yet, according to the analysis by the Warren Commission, the guys watching the film, the Z film, the Zabruder film, the timing was too close, it was like 1.6 seconds. So for those right, this two is a bolt-action rifle. Yeah, you can't do, you can't get that off in a, with a bolt-action rifle that quickly. Well, yeah, exactly. All right, and and so for those two reasons, Spectre had to come up with a way, you know, for one of these bullets to do double duty, and that is where the so-called single bullet theory, or whatever you want to call it, I call it the single bullet fantasy. And, you know, some people call it the magic bullet. Okay, whatever it is. That's how it was created. It was a child of necessity. And that, uh, that great speech from JFK uh, with Kevin Costner playing Jim Garrison, the magic bullet speech, did it actually, right. did Garrison deliver it just like that? Or again, is there some poetic license there taken by Stone in the movie? No, I, I actually, I don't think it was Garrison who introduced that. Okay. I think it was Oser, Alvin Oser. Okay who talked about, he did the medical evidence and the ballistic evidence at the Clay Shaw trial. Okay. Um, the guy who, by the way, the guy who suggested that to Oliver to put it in the film like that what is in our movie, Cyril Wecht. Right. You know, right. Who, I, who plays a really strong part in the film. All right. And, um, and he's the one who suggested to Oliver. Well, let me ask you this. How could a bullet do all that and miss only 2.4 grains of its mass? Not grams, 2.4 grains, you know, of its mass. And we have Joseph Dolce, Dr. Joseph Dolce, in the film talking about this. And he was a battlefield uh, surgeon during World War II. And he says, under no circumstances do I believe that this bullet could have done what they said it did and emerged this intact. All right? Now, I don't know if you know this. That guy worked for the Warren Commission. And let me say this again. Joseph Dolce worked for the Warren Commission. 
He says right in our movie that under no circumstances do I think this bullet could have done this kind of damage and emerge in the condition it's in. Now, here's my question. Try and find Joseph Dolce in the Warren Report. Try and find Joseph Dolce in the Warren Commission volumes. You won't. You won't find him. Because Arlen Specter made sure that he wasn't in there. Okay. <laughs> Even though yeah. he was his own expert. How convenient. How convenient. Yeah. Uh, so again, yeah, the after after going through Kennedy and Connolly, uh, and causing seven wounds and 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 tearing through flesh and bone, the bullet presumably in pristine condition we're told, falls out of Connolly's clothes onto a stretcher at Parkland uh, Hospital uh, where it's found by um, uh, an orderly. Uh, but but is there any evidence actually that, that Governor Connolly was on that stretcher in the hospital where the bullet was found? Now, well, now that's a very good question, which I actually wish we would have put in the movie. Because as Tink Thompson proved in his book, Six Seconds in Dallas, and Don Thomas proved again in his book, Hear No Evil, that bullet, CE-399, was not found on Conley's stretcher. It was found on a little kid, I think he was 11 years old, named Ronnie Fuller. It was found on his stretcher. Okay? Now, if you look at the way that Arlen Specter examined Daryl Tomlinson, okay, you'll see that Specter knew this. He knew that he had a very serious problem. And the way he questioned Tomlinson would never be allowed in a court of law because he was trying to lead him to Conley Stretcher. Okay? Now, here's here, but here, but it's even worse than that. It's even worse than that. And this is another thing we didn't, we didn't put in the film. In 1993, a researcher named Wallace Milam talked to O.P. Wright's widow. O.P. Wright the is the director. guy who he handled the director 399 Right. Okay. And he had passed on, but she was the head of nursing. Okay. And she told Wallace Milam, that, you know, that wasn't the only bullet we found that day. <laughs> there were other bullets that were showing up. Okay? Now, <laughs> when I heard that, I said, so in other words, they were covering themselves. There, there was going to be a bullet found at Parkland Hospital come hell or right. high water. It's like an All Easter right? egg hunt. <laughs> And did they ever match CE-399 to uh, the rifle, Oswald's rifle? Well, according to the Warren Commission, they did. There's a little bit of disagreement about that with the House Select Committee on Assassinations. Okay. They kind of dis they slightly disagreed with that. Okay. But the point we were trying to make with CE-399 is... We wanted to avoid all that stuff about bullet trajectories and stuff like that. And we just wanted to prove, and I think we did, that 
CE399 would never be admitted into a court of law today, all right, simply because there is no chain of custody to that bullet. And we spent a lot of time on this. Like you said, we proved with Gary Aguilar, okay, with Deborah Conway, with David Mantic and the late John Hunt, okay, that, number one, the FBI lied about the identification of that bullet. The guy that they said they sent around for the identification, Bardwell Odom, told Gary Aguilar and Ting Thompson, I did no such thing. I never showed that bullet to anybody. And if I would have done so, I would have remembered because I was friends with O.P. Wright. Okay? So, in other words, Hoover just lied about that. Okay? Secondly, the FBI also lied about Elmer Lee Todd's initials being on that bullet, okay? Elmer Lee Todd was the last guy who got the bullet from James Rowley, the head of the Secret Service, at the White House, all right? And Hoover said that Elmer Lee Todd's initials are on the bullet. Elmer Lee Todd's initials are not on the bullet. And we have this from both John Hunt, who saw the pictures, and also from David Mantic, who actually had that bullet in his hand before they started passing out the pictures. But here is the clincher. The clincher is that that bullet was not given to Elmer Lee Todd till about 8.40 or 8.50 that night. And there's a receipt for it. So that's how we know that. But yet in Frazier's paperwork, he says he got the stretcher bullet at 7.30. Now think about that for a while. How on earth could he get the stretcher bullet at 7.30 if Elmer Lee Todd had not given it to him yet? So in other words, what that says is there's either an extra bullet or somebody switched to bullets. Either way, you have a conspiracy. All right? All right? And so right. this is what we tried to show, that... We shouldn't be talking about trajectories or anything like that anymore. The question that I wanted to pose is who planted CE399? Okay. All right, That's Jim, got to take another time. That's what I want the audience we'll, to walk uh, away of. Who planted right. that bullet? Exactly. All right, Jim, we'll take a, a quick time out. Jim DiEugenio, JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass, plays uh, tomorrow night. November the 22nd, showtime on Crave TV across Canada. Back with more of our conversation in two minutes. Don't be afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free 1-866-740-4740. And we will take questions and comments after the top of the hour with Jim DiEugenio as we continue to discuss JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass. That is um, the latest from uh, Oliver Stone. And um, Jim DiEugenio wrote the scripts and uh, heavily, heavily involved, obviously, uh, with this film. Now, the rush to get Kennedy's body out of Dallas... And, and to uh, Bethesda Naval Hospital. Um, I mean, who? I mean, that's breaking all protocols. I would I would imagine, right? You've got a you've got a dead body. You've got 
the um, you've got a a crime scene. You have uh, an active investigation. Uh, I mean, is was that allowed? I mean, can you take? Can the Secret Service? No, actually, actually, what the Secret Service did there was against the law. Earl right. Rose, who was the uh, medical examiner in Dallas Fort Worth, his office was right at Parkland Hospital. Okay, on the first floor. All right, and he wanted to do the autopsy there. All right, but there was a long, drawn-out argument that ended with in a violent kind of way, and he ended up being literally shoved aside. All right, and they got on Air Force One, and they went to Bethesda Medical Center, and which is a Navy hospital. And they got, instead of Earl Rose, who was a pretty good medical examiner, they got these guys who were not even really practicing forensic pathologists. Humes and Boswell had not done a gunshot autopsy in a heck of a long time, years on end. All right, so they called in Pierre Fink, all right, and he was, I think, from the Army or the Air Force, and then they wanted to get somebody from outside, but that permission was denied. And so they ended up with what is probably one of the worst autopsies in the history of medical evidence. Okay, and we, we do, this is the other thing that we spent a lot of time on, okay, because because of this autopsy, because it was so heavily controlled, okay, by outside forces who should never even have been there, really, all right, this is why nobody really knows the actual circumstances of how President Kennedy was killed. Because when somebody dies of a gunshot wound and it's a homicide, all right, you're supposed to dissect the wounds. Both in, in Kennedy, there were allegedly two wounds, one from his back and the other one in his head, okay? Well, the doctors there that night were stopped from dissecting the back wound, all right? And as we spent a lot of time on in the film, there's a very big controversy about whether or not there was a sectioning of Kennedy's brain. Let me explain what that means. In a gunshot wound autopsy where there's a bullet wound to the head, you're supposed to let the brain soak, okay, because you don't want to do it in a fresh state because it has no consistency, all right? And so you let it firm up, okay? And then you either do what's called a cereal section, which is like cutting a bread loaf, or you do what is called a pie section. And you section off the brain that way. And this way, you can go ahead and determine what path the bullet or bullets went through in Kennedy's brain. Well, as I said, there was no back wound dissection. And there's a very big controversy about whether or not Kennedy's brain 
was ever cut so that we could see the way the bullets went. The official records say that this never happened. But as uh, Doug Horn talks about in the film, and even more in the longer version, the four-hour version that's coming out in February, okay, there might have been one of these, but they ditched the evidence, okay? You know, they deliberately deep-sixed the evidence that that ever happened. They never wanted it to get out. And I'm sure you're aware, Richard, that anybody who sees the film, our other big pillar of evidence to show that there was fraud in the record is that the brain in evidence cannot possibly be President Kennedy's. And it took us this long to figure that out, which is a real shame. Well, we'll, uh, we'll pick up on that point on the other side, uh, Jim. This was a short segment. When we come back, we'll talk about the president's brain. Jim DiEugenio uh, wrote the, uh, the script for JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass, Oliver Stone's latest, uh, 30 years after the drama JFK. Uh, he's doubling down once again, and this uh, premieres in Canada, across Canada, tomorrow night on Showtime on Crave TV. Back with more in a moment. Don't go away. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. And we're back with Jim DiEugenio. He stays with us for the full two hours. We'll take questions and comments after the top of the hour. You can call in at 416-360-0740, 416-360-0740 in the greater Toronto area or toll free from just about anywhere, one 866 740 And if you're in the YouTube live chat where we're live streaming this program tonight, um, Ryan, my live stream producer, will uh, gather up all your questions and he'll feed those to me. And I'll ask those to Jim. All right. So we're talking about Kennedy's brain. And you're saying that, uh, uh, well, we saw photographs of the uh, of the brain, but that wasn't his brain, right? Well, the illustration by Ida Docks, the medical illustrator for the uh, House Select Committee on Assassinations, depicts what is, in essence, pretty much an intact brain. I mean, it's disrupted, but it's pretty much an intact brain. But further, when it was weighed, it came in at 1,500 grams. As we discuss in the film, all right, and this was a major point we tried to put across, 1,500 grams is above the norm. The norm is about 1380. Okay? So here you have a brain that's actually above the usual weight. How could that be? Right. We saw I his mean, head virtually explode. I mean, there was gray matter on right? the back of that limousine. If you I'm watch sorry to get graphic, but, film, yeah. Kennedy's head explodes, okay, yeah. in, in this uh, halo. Of, of red and flesh, okay, and liquid into the air. There's the motorcycle cops 
on the left side of Kennedy got brain and tissue embedded in their face. Okay? If you've seen, and we show the film, all the blood and, and liquid in the back seat of the car. Okay, not the jump seat where Conley was. Okay, but the back seat of the car. All right? You, Jackie Kennedy goes reaching out to the hood of the car because part of JFK's brain, you know, was on the hood of the car. Right. All right? So how in God's name can Kennedy's brain weigh more than what, the, what it should? I'm sorry. I just don't buy it. Now, in addition to that, in addition to that, in my book, The JFK Assassination, The Evidence Today, I listed 12 witnesses, 12 eyewitnesses, who said that Kennedy's brain was not an intact brain that it was severely wounded and damaged, okay? Part of it was missing, all right? So, in my opinion, and, even, and by the way, I'm so glad we got Mike Chesser. Dr. Chesser is actually a neurologist. Oh, yes. Yeah. Okay? And he says this, this cannot possibly be President Kennedy's brain. Now, why would they do something like that? Well, because and it, would I, I think hide, it would hide. Says, yeah, it would hide evidence that he was shot from the front. Right. Exactly. Exactly. It would prevent the discovery of two shots to the head, which is what many people believe is the actual way that Kennedy was killed. All right. You know. And then, what well, I was so proud that we had um, John Stringer. John Stringer is the official photographer. Douglas Horn, one of our interview subjects, was in the room when he was examined by the ARB, the Assassination Records Review Board. They showed him pictures, the extant pictures of Kennedy's brain. And he walked up to the pictures and he says, This is, I think this is Ansco film. I didn't use Ansco. I use Kodak. And he says, you see, you see these numbers here down in the right-hand corner? This means that these pictures were taken with a film pack. I did not take pictures with a film pack. And then Jeremy Gunn, the chief counsel, said, you said you saw a highly damaged cerebellum, which is in the lower part of the brain in the back. Is that what you see here? And he goes, no. That's an intact cerebellum. And so Jeremy Gunn asked him, are you ready to say that you didn't take these pictures? And he says, as far as I know, I didn't take these pictures. So here, so, you know how important that is, Richard? Because in a court of law, if you're going to try and admit a picture, an illustration, or a drawing as evidence, the person who made that picture, illustration, or drawing has to say that that's the picture that he took. So in other words, these photographs would never be admitted into a court of law today. And that's another illustration of the fraud in this case. Right, right. And then the brain supposedly goes to the National Archives, but it disappears 
from the pages of history. <laughs> now, was right, that exactly. Cyril Wecht? Who, All right. Was that Cyril when Wecht who actually Cyril discovered? Wecht went into yeah. the National Archives in 1972, he was the first forensic pathologist that was allowed to go in. All right. And he looked at the inventory and he said, there's supposed to be a brain here. There is no brain here. Kennedy's brain is missing. All right. You know, so in other words, here you have these false representations of John F. Kennedy's brain when, in fact, his, the real brain of John F. Kennedy disappeared God knows how long ago. You know, so in other words, here, and here's a question. Why do, they, why do they need these fraudulent pictures and who took them? And we, as you saw, you saw the film, we tried to make a case for Robert Knudsen might have taken them. Okay, do you want to get into that now or do you want to wait yeah, to take a uh, break? We've, we've got about three minutes here. Yeah, why did you, just walk us through how you arrived at Knudsen. See, Robert Knudsen was called, okay, by, I think, George Berkeley to uh, report to follow Kennedy's body once it arrived in Washington. He was gone for three days. His family didn't see him. He was the White House photographer. He was one of the official White House photographers. He actually delivered pictures to Sandra Spencer, who's another important witness that we feature in the film. Okay. He said he took pictures, okay, of, of the autopsy. But his pictures are gone, okay? And he did not recognize some of the pictures of the autopsy that are in evidence today. He recalled a big hole in the back of Kennedy's head, okay? You know? And so we suspect that they both took pictures, okay? Both Stringer and Knudsen. And if there's somebody who who actually did take pictures of, the, of, the, of Kennedy's real brain. It was probably Newtson, and those pictures disappeared. All right? And let me add just one last thing. If you listen to Robert Newtson's um, deposition, which is on tape at the National Archives, you want, you want to hear something really weird? Yes. It's not his voice. It's what? a woman's voice. In the National Archives. It's not Newtson talking. Now, is that the weirdest thing you ever heard in your life? Why on earth would they, they not let at? the guy speak in his own voice? Right, right. That is bizarre. That is very strange. <laughs> Jim DiEugenio is uh, with us. He wrote the screenplay for JFK Revisited. Again, that's uh, premiering across Canada. Tomorrow night, the 58, uh, 58th anniversary of JFK's assassination, and you can see it on Showtime on Crave TV. Um, and it aired earlier this month in the U.S., I believe, correct? Was it the November 12th? It, it, it's, it's on demand, okay, right. in the U.S. It was available as of it right. was available as It's premiering tomorrow in the United States on Showtime oh. also. Ah, okay. Um. And when did you say again the three hour uh, the th part two the three hours is coming out? 
The four-hour version. The four-hour version is coming out in February, okay? And that will be on demand also. You can either rent it or you can buy it. And there will be a book also, a book of the film. That's coming out too. We've got about a minute here before we break. I mean, when you when you oh, watch let, this by now, the way, let me tell you why we have to do the book of the film. All right. Like I said earlier, we had so many good interviews that we just, to be perfectly honest, this could have gone six hours, and it would have been probably just as good as a two-hour version that we have. That strong, okay. We couldn't we couldn't get anybody to bite on the six-hour one. So Oliver and Rob Wilson, the producer, said, Jim, why don't you make a book of the film? And the stuff that we couldn't put in the movie, put in the book. Now, where do you see some of the interviews that we did that, that we could not put in the film? I mean, it's, it's, it's just sensational stuff. Can't wait, Jim. Got to take a time out. Top of the hour. Uh, we will open up the phone lines and take questions and comments for James D. Eugenio, one of the world's foremost JFK assassination researchers, he wrote the screenplay for Oliver Stone's latest doc, JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass, back with more of our conversation right after these. When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. This is Zoomer Radio Toronto. CFZM FM and CFZM AM, owned and operated by MZ Media Incorporated. Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. body really doesn't move forward at that point. That um, very slight movement is the deceleration of the core. Um, the body then moves uh, rather violently backward and to the left. Later on, there is a forward movement that occurs about uh, a half to three quarters of a second later, and that's when he's hitting the head. The head wound has been analyzed now, uh, not only by me, but by, as I say, radiologists and neuroscientists and many others. And 
most importantly, perhaps, all of the doctors at Parkland Hospital. And it's clear that what the Warren Commission concluded was erroneous. All right. That was famed American forensic pathologist Sarah Wecht. Uh, I believe that clip is from a JFK assassination conference back in 2013. And um, uh, he was the first civilian ever given permission to examine the Kennedy assassination evidence back in 1972. And as uh, Jim and I were discussing earlier, it was Wecht who first discovered that Kennedy's brain and uh, all related data in the killing or much of the related data in the killing had gone missing from the National Archives. And then in 1978, Wecht testified before the House Select Committee on Assassinations as the lone dissenter on a nine-member forensic pathology panel re-examining the assassination of JFK. And, of course, uh, Cyril was a, a consultant to Stone for the film in uh, for the film JFK, and now 90 years old, still incredibly sharp, and he appears in JFK Revisited. Jim DiEugenio stays with us. He, again, of course, wrote the script for JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass. Uh, let me just uh, go right to our YouTube live chat, Jim. And let's see, Robert, Roger Vega asks, uh, Jim first brought to light the fact that JFK was against foreign intervention in the Middle East when he spoke on the floor of the Senate. Can you expand on that, Jim? Yes, there was uh, Kennedy... Uh, in 1957, made a very famous speech about the whole Algerian attempt to be free from French colonialism, all right? And uh, Algeria at that time was a predominantly Muslim country. I think it was like 90% uh, Muslim, all right? And Kennedy made a speech about this because it, it's, it's, it's much wiser for us to go ahead and get a negotiated peace than it is to support this bloody, horrible war that France, France is involved with to keep Algeria a part of the French Empire. And he said, words to the effect, that you know we have an opportunity here to set a very good example in the Third World. Now, when he becomes president... When Kennedy becomes president, he has a very special relationship with Gamal Abdel Nasser, the president of Egypt, and by far, by far, the most influential and charismatic leader throughout the entire Arab world. All right? And in the long version of the film, the four-hour version, you will see this. This is something we go into. And we also go into the whole uh, battle between Kennedy and David Ben-Gurion over the Demona nuclear reactor. Okay? So those are some of the things. See, when you see the, the four-hour film, you'll see what I was trying to do. What I was trying to do was to show John Foster Dulles' foreign policy before Kennedy how Kennedy changed that, okay, and how his assassination caused to go back to that, which I believe is a definition, one definition, of a classic coup d'etat. That's the way I look at the Kennedy assassination. All right, and Jim Garrison 
usually is given credit for the first person to say that, but there was actually two other people who were saying it back in the 60s. The German writer uh, Joachim Jostein and the American attorney Stanley Marks, who wrote a series of overlooked books back at that time. And one of the names of his book is Murder Most Foul, is also the name of Bob Dylan's song about the Kennedy assassination. So the idea of a coup d'etat goes all the way back until the late 60s. And that's what I believe um, what happened here. All right. Uh, you Betcha in the YouTube live chat asks, Jim, have you ever talked to Stone about the 1990 movie uh, JFK? And how does he feel about the movie three decades later? That's a good question. How does he feel looking back at it? <laughs> I actually did in my book, The JFK Assassination, The Evidence Today. I actually did. I don't think anybody else has done this. I did a scene-by-scene -scene review of the first hour or so of the film, comparing it to what we have today. In other words, in the declassified documents. And if you go ahead and look at that, that analysis, if anything, the first hour or so kind of understates what happened. You know, in other words, the evidence we have today is even stronger than what, what's in the film. All right? Now, there are some things that I would advise him differently to do. Okay? Um, for instance, the Fletcher Prouty scene with Donald Sutherland in Washington. What I would advise him to do is I would have said, you know, you ought to use Richard Case Nagel because Garrison actually did meet with Richard Case Nagel at the time. He didn't meet Fletcher until later, okay? And then if you want to put the stuff in about Vietnam, there's this professor uh, at Ohio University who wrote Garrison a letter about this subject, 26 pages, okay, single-spaced, handwritten, on how Kennedy's murder caused the escalation of the Vietnam War. I would use that instead. See, those are some of the things I would have... I would have advised him about, just to stay safer. Okay, but let me add one other thing. If you take a look at a movie like The Untouchables, okay, yep. which I like, I think it's a very good film. It's true. And if you compare that to the real story, I mean, my God, you know, about 70% of it is, is just completely false, never happened, Okay. Oliver uses dramatic license much less than that, and he gets hammered, okay? So, you know, it's, it's, it's a very weird double standard, okay? And I think it's for the simple reason that Oliver's films are much more political than, say, somebody like Brian De Palma is, all right? I think it's very unfair. Could JFK, the 1991 version, be made today? Probably not. I mean, it, it would have to be from somebody else, okay? Um, and but, but the thing is, I actually believe that Oliver made the right choice in this. I think he should have made a documentary. For the simple reason, I'm sure you know this, Richard, but I'm willing to wager that hardly anybody else does. 
the Assassinations Record Review Board closed in 1998, which was, you just do the arithmetic, 23 years ago. Mm-hmm. Why did it take me, Oliver Stone, and Rob Wilson to do a report on all the things that they discovered. In the entire four years that they were running, I only recall two news stories, two major news stories of what they did. One was admitting finally in 1997 that Oliver Stone, Fletcher Prouty, and John Newman were right. Kennedy was withdrawing from Vietnam. And the second story was only carried in one newspaper, the Washington Post, and it was a summary of what Doug Horn had written about the mystery of Kennedy's brain. Now, in those four years, the Assassinations Record Review Board declassified 60,000 documents and 2 million pages. And in all that time, only two stories. So here's my question again. Why did it take us... 23 years later, to go ahead and explore what was in those 2 million pages of documents. I mean, uh, if, if somebody can inform me of why that was, I mean, we can all speculate, okay? But it shouldn't have happened that way. Not at all. All right. Uh, Harlan, is it Harlan Sampson, asks, what do you think, Jim, of the impact of Marilyn Monroe's death on the JFK assassination? Oh, my God. This is one of the biggest piles of baloney that's that's ever been presented, okay? And Mark Shaw, with his terrible book, okay, is one of the big promoters of this. If you go to a guy named Donald McGovern, his website, Maryland from the 22nd floor, I think it is, um, or from the 22nd row or something like that, I've written a review of his book, which is called Murder Orthodoxies. All right. There is no relationship at all between the two. Okay. It's, it's completely a pile of rubbish. And this includes Gianni Russo, who was in the Godfather movies. All right. It includes all these trashy books going back to Robert Schlatzer and Norman Mailer. Okay. You know, and... He exposes that for what it is, all right? There's simply, there's simply nothing there. There was no impact on either one, you know? And then he tries to bring in Dorothy Kilgallen to this, when in fact Kilgallen and Marilyn Monroe were never friends, okay? They, Marilyn Monroe didn't like Dorothy Kilgallen at all. So we tried to stay away from that because it doesn't really merit any serious discussion, about why Kennedy was killed or how he was killed, all right? So we tried to stick to the record as exclusively as we could. All right. Uh, Richard Warner asks, did the Secret Service really destroy the assassination files in the early 90s? Yes. In about, in about 19, I think the, it was 1995, okay, they knew that the the review board wanted the records of Kennedy's visits throughout his administration, but they went ahead and they destroyed. And, and what, what makes this so bizarre is that in the film, which you've seen, 
I'm very proud that for the first time, the American public is going to see that they tried to kill Kennedy twice before in November. I'm talking about Chicago, right. and I'm talking about Tampa. The first one, I believe, was November the 2nd in Chicago, and the second one was November the 18th. And those are some of the records that they deep-sixed, okay? It was very, very, you know, clearly illegal. And I, I believe the review board should have made more of that. We talked about it in the film with John Thunheim and Tom Samalock, but I believe they should have made more of that at the time. I think it's very, very important what happened in Chicago, and very, very because if you look at it the way I'm looking at it, Kennedy was not getting out of 1963 because the Chicago plot so closely resembles what happened in Dallas. Okay, and Paul Blow, who is a, also a Canadian. All right, from he teaches at uh, in Quebec City. All right, he's a professor uh, in business. Okay, uh, he talks about this in the film. All right, the Chicago plot is so close to what happened in Dallas that it's it's almost eerie. And if those records would not have been kept secret, if they would have not have been destroyed, you know, they would have probably prevented what happened in Dallas because the pattern was so similar. All right. Was so, was there yes, was Oswald was Oswald trying to warn about that assassination attempt? There's some suggestion that one of the individuals named was actually Oswald, and he was trying to warn them about that plot. Well, no, it wasn't Oswald. It was codenamed Lee. Okay. Now that's a really interesting point. Okay, because uh, the code name for one of the informants on the Chicago plot was Lee. And we're never going to know if that was Oswald or not. Yes, it might have been. It might have not been. But that's one of the things that should have been thoroughly explored by the Warren Commission. And there's no evidence at all that I've been able to find that they explored either the Chicago plot or the Tampa plot, okay, which is an utter and complete disgrace when you think about this. And what about the Tampa plot? Uh, um, was that also uh, – how was that foiled, by the way? How was the Tampa plot foiled? Okay, at the very last minute, okay, they got a tip from the local police, a guy named Mullins, who was the local chief of police. He got a tip that there was an assassination plot brewing between anywhere from one to three men – that Kennedy would be killed from a tall building with a high-powered rifle. Now, on the, the route that Kennedy took, that was one of the longest parade routes ever. There was a very tall building called the Floridian Hotel, which I think was 23 stories, which is pretty tall at that time, back in 1963. All right? And so they put together a kind of platoon of both the local police and the Secret Service and a couple of military guys. And they went into, and on that, in that building, the Floridian Hotel, 
there was a law enforcement officer on every floor, all 23 floors. Kennedy knew about this, and he went ahead and demanded that every one of those guys meet with him personally because he wanted to shake their hands. See, I, I don't think he wanted to cancel out of this one like they did in Chicago. Okay, they ended up canceling that one at the last minute. Most people believe that Patsy in this particular one was going to be a guy named Gilberto Lopez, who was a Cuban exile who had been to a Fair Play for Cuba committee meeting. After going to Florida, he went to Dallas, and from Dallas he went to Mexico City, and then from Mexico City he went to Cuba. He was the one person on the flight to Cuba. Okay, and, and you can actually find his name online. You just type in Gilberto Lopez, Tampa, Florida plot, and you can find stories about this guy. See, it's, it's such an utter disgrace that neither one of those cases was studied by the Warren Commission. You know, I believe they're both very instructive and very important to what happened to Kennedy in Dallas. We just have a couple minutes here before the uh, the break. When we come back, I know we've talked about this before, but it, it's um, it, it, it's so fascinating to me. And that has to do with Oswell ordering the rifle from Klein Sporting Goods Store in uh, Chicago and the whole timeline of that. Um, but before we do that, and I say we've got about two minutes here, who made the decision that JFK's limo in Dallas would be a convertible. Oh, you know something? I don't think anybody really knows that. But it wasn't Kennedy who uh, said to take off the plexiglass top. That's a myth that gets distributed, okay, a lot, okay? It was just a decision that was made by the Secret Service, all right? And Kennedy kind of would rather do that because it gave him more exposure, okay? He's one of these guys. I mean, you, you see him landing at Love Field. You see him and Jackie Kennedy going out to the crowd and shaking hands with the people there. He, he liked being close to these crowds, you know? Um, and and that's, you know, that's really a kind of a shame, you know, that, uh, that, that it happened that way. So, you know, and I don't, I don't blame that much. on him. I blame that on the Secret Service. Right. I mean, these guys were out so, getting drunk the night before till 3 o'clock in the morning, and they paid fire department guys to guard Kennedy while they were getting plowed, okay, with grain alcohol. <laughs> How do you protect wow. somebody on four hours sleep? Unbelievable. That's disgraceful. Yeah. All right, Jim, we're going to roll into a break here at the bottom. Uh, well, we're not quite at the bottom of the hour. When we come back, I, I do want to talk to you about Klein Sporting Goods Store. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show, Jim DiEugenio, world-renowned JFK assassination researcher, wrote the screenplay for Oliver Stone's JFK Revisited, which uh, debuts actually tonight officially, uh, November 22nd, on Showtime on Crave TV across Canada. Back with more in a moment. Don't go away. Curiosity, or did the devil make you do it? Whatever the reason, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free 
at 1-866-740-4740. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. All right, we're back. Jim DiEugenio is with us. And uh, the latest Oliver Stone project, JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass. Jim wrote the uh, the screenplay debuting tonight on Showtime across Canada, uh, Crave TV. Uh, do you think, that, uh, just before we get into the, 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 the ordering, the mail order of the rifle through Klein's Sporting Goods in Chicago, is this Oliver's last word, aside from the, the book that's coming out and the four-hour uh, version of uh, this documentary coming out in February. Do you think this is it for for Oliver and JFK? Yes. <laughs> yes. All right. Okay. I I I don't think he's gonna. Uh, I don't think he's gonna go back into the arena again. You know. But I'm I'm kind of glad that this is gonna have a kind of staggered. You know, the two hour version, then the four hour version, and then the book. Because there's gonna be three stages to this which I think is going to make it longer, okay? And it's going to go from November all the way to February, you know? And so you'll probably want to interview me when the four-hour version comes out, okay? Or maybe when the book comes out. The book is going to be so smashing, okay? Because we had so many terrific interviews that that we couldn't use because of the length factor. But I do believe this would be Oliver's last song on this subject. All right, so the ordering of... The uh, the man liquor uh, rifle through the uh, sporting goods store in Chicago. You've told the story before. It's been a, a few years, and there, I'm, I'm guessing many listeners haven't heard it. This is absolutely remarkable how this all went down. It just defies all credulity, really. Can you walk us through that? All right. And by the way, we touch on this in the film, especially yeah. the longer version. All right. Uh, if if you believe the Warren Commission, okay, you have to believe that Oswald ordered the rifle, okay, and he mailed a coupon and a money order from the Every uh, Street Post Office, which I think is the main post office in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, all right, that... He mailed it to Chicago Klein Sporting Goods Store, which is a thousand miles away from the Dallas Fort Worth area where he was living at the time. That coupon and money order then went to the Chicago Post Office, went off the plane, Chicago Post Office. Then it was distributed to the local post office, delivered to Klein's, and at Klein's, they sorted all their funds, okay, by money order, check, cash, in-state, out-of-state. And then they walked it over to the Bank of Chicago. Now, what I just said, this whole long, complicated transaction, if you believe the Warren Commission, that took 24 hours. <laughs> 24 hours. Now, this didn't make it into the film, and I, but I wish it would have. We did an experiment. We had Deborah Conway mail a letter 
from that very same post office, okay? And by the way, Oswald didn't even use that post office. He went to a mailbox first. Okay, but, but to play it safe, she mailed it from the post office to a guy who writes for Probe magazine, Mike LaFlem, who lived at that time in Chicago, one mile from Klein's. It took six days. Now, if you eliminate Sunday, it took five days. But just remember right. this. There might, there's more people today, of course. But back then, they didn't have zip codes. They didn't have high-speed sorters. They didn't have computers. They didn't have sensors. Okay? So I'm sorry. I just don't believe this. Okay, I don't believe that such a thing could happen in a 24-hour period. Now, on the other end, of course, since according to the Warren Commission, the um, the uh, rifle was not ordered in his name. It was by a guy named Heidel. Okay. Uh, that rifle delivery should have never gotten to Oswald because if it's not for the same person... If, it, if the address on the box is not for the same person, it's supposed to be shipped back. Okay? But let's assume, for the sake of argument again, let's assume that he did pick it up at the post office. He would have had to prove that he was using this alias, Heidel. And they would have had to bring out a five-foot box from the back. Now, wouldn't somebody have remembered that? Okay? especially since there were FBI informants working in that post office, all right? So in addition to the stuff that's in the film, because we show in the film that the rifle in the backyard photographs is not the same as the rifle that's in evidence, okay? And we show that in the backyard photographs, I mean, why would you change the hand where you have your ring on from you know, Marina, I think it'll look better if I put the ring on my right hand rather than on my left hand. Okay. <laughs> this is the this is the photograph that's taken at Ruth Payne's house in the backyard, and he's holding up. Yes. Um, he's got the, the worker and the militant, the news, the communist newspapers right. he's holding, and he's got the rifle and the pistol. So right. The suggestion here is that this photograph was was faked. Yes. Well, Richard, would you change your hand of, um, that your ring is on if you were doing something like that and plus of course the other thing we point out is that the sling mount in the rifle and evidence is on the side it's it's screwed into the side and we also mention in the film that it's the wrong rifle oswald ordered a 36 inch rifle the rifle and evidence is a 40.2 inch rifle which is classified as a short rifle. The 36-inch version is called a carbine. So for all of these reasons, you know, I do not think that the rifle in evidence was the one that was ordered by, by Oswald. Okay, I just don't think so. I don't think it happened that way. And I think that the American public, and they're going to be informed of at least some of this in the short version, I don't think they'd buy it either. So the idea was to create a, a, a paper trail to, yes. uh, to again, to frame Oswald yes. and, and to show, you know, custody of the of the rifle and so forth. Yes. All right. Uh, back to our YouTube live chat. Toxic Canadian asks, Jim, do you think 
you have the answer to the ultimate question. Why was JFK killed? There are a lot of great theories out there. I mean, is there is there one why or are there like I think there are maybe three, four or five whys? I, he was I look, I've, I've said this many times and I'll keep on saying it. OK, because I've done a lot of work on this issue. All right. I believe that the cover up about who John F. Kennedy was and what he represented is more systemic, more rigorous and deeper than the cover up about how Kennedy was killed. All right. And I believe the reason for that is because it would supply what's called a motive for his assassination. Okay? I believe that Kennedy was changing the foreign policy of the United States too fast and too hard for people in Joint Chiefs of Staff and the CIA. They were just not going to tolerate that. And they knew that Johnson would be much more accommodating. For example, one of the really good things that's in the film, and you probably remember this, Richard, is we have Johnson telling McNamara, okay, that he admits this. It's on tape. He says, I never agreed with what you and the president wanted to do about withdrawing from Vietnam. I thought it was a bad decision psychologically, mm. but I just sat there because I was... He says this on tape. Yeah. We have it on tape in 1964. And then we have John Newman, who is one of the foremost authorities on this issue, the Vietnam issue. We have him listening to McNamara's debriefs. McNamara, he had a relationship with McNamara. Okay, and he allowed him to go in, and because and, I think McNamara retired in late 67. He went in for his debriefs. And he says in his debriefs that... The president and I had decided that we could help. We could train them. We could give them equipment. Okay, but we couldn't do anything more. We couldn't fight the war for them. All right? And when the training session was done, we were going to withdraw, whether we were winning or losing. All right? He says this. John says it. John listened to him. So... Now, if you remember how god-awful that Vietnam War was, okay, Kennedy was never going to commit to that thing, all right? But the military wanted them to do that. So I think that's one of the major reasons. I think the overall foreign policy was the major reason. But I think Vietnam was very important to them, you know? They wanted to go into Laos in 1961, and Kennedy turned them down on that one. Okay, so then they shifted over to Vietnam. And when, by the way, in the long version, we have a very interesting segment on Curtis LeMay. Okay, mm. who should have been a person of interest in any real investigation. Curtis LeMay, of course, was the the uh, chief of the uh, of the Air Force, who Kennedy had a problem with during the missile crisis. If you remember when when Kennedy announced he was going to do the quarantine, Curtis LeMay actually said to his face, you know, this is worse than Neville Chamberlain at Munich. Right. LeMay uh, believed that they could win a, a nuclear... Your boss? 
Yeah, I mean, LeMay, but he did. LeMay, LeMay believed that they could win a nuclear exchange with the Soviets, right? <laughs> he was willing to go to the brink over Vietnam. Yeah. Even he yeah. said, if the Chinese come in, we'll just nuke them. Okay? This is, I mean, come on, give me a break, will you? Right, to, kind to of the inspiration for... Uh, bombs over that third world country, over a war we should have never been involved in? Right, you know? I think... George C. Scott's character in um, in Doctor Strange, based on LeMay, if I'm not mistaken. We'll right. take a, a quick time out. Come back. Uh, James G. Eugenio stays with us. JFK revisited through the Looking Glass. Back with more in a moment. Keeping an eye on the new world order. This is the Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Jim Eugenio is with us. JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass debuts tonight on Showtime. You can find that on Crave TV. Uh, we were talking about Vietnam, and of course one of the big... Well, Vietnam was a bonanza for Bell Helicopter. And so it's interesting that Ruth Payne, who was a friend with Marina Oswald, married to Michael Payne, who was an executive at Bell Helicopter. Uh, I mean, is that a coincidence or is that significant? <laughs> well, unfortunately, we didn't have the time to get into Ruth and Michael Payne in the film. If, again, if, it would have been, if they would have allowed us six hours, which I think it should have been, you know, then we probably would have gotten into Ruth and Michael Payne. But here you have this guy with this clearance at Bell Helicopter, okay, in the defense industry, who's hanging out with this communist who's actually visiting his house, okay, uh, on the weekends to see his wife, all right? Now, that is a little bit weird, I think, all right? And, and that's not where it begins or ends. It's, uh, you know, Ruth Payne seems intent upon separating Marina from Lee from almost the minute they met, which I believe was in April of 1963, through the auspices of George de Morenschild. And there's another incredible case, you know, this white Russian... Uh, debonair, handsome, you know, who's been through a couple of fortunes in the oil business, chooses to hang out with this so-called Marxist who's a defector from the Soviet Union and defected back. You know, what the heck was that all about? And before he died, George DeMorenschild said that he would have never met Oswald in a million years. He was ordered to do so by the CIA station chief. In Dallas, J. Walton Moore. All right? So th this whole thing about the supposedly communist Oswald, who is hanging out with the right Russian community in Dallas-Fort Worth and with the Cuban exile community and with Guy Bannister in New Orleans, is such a hunk of trash, you know. And that, that, that the Warren Commission never got to the bottom of this is, again, another disgrace upon them. You know, we go into it a little in the film, and we show how the CIA had a program going on to destroy the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. And they also backed 
Carlos Bringier's group, the DRE, the Student uh, Directorate National, okay, which began in Cuba, which was started by David Phillips, okay, and David Phillips was also the guy who started the Anti-Fair Play for Cuba Committee uh, campaign that the CIA was doing. So in other words, the CIA is using both ends in order to to, uh, uh, discredit the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, and you got Oswald working out of Guy Bannister's office, and he actually puts the stamp on one of his flyers, 544 Camp Street, okay, Guy Bannister's office. He was very upset when he learned that, that Oswald had done such a stupid thing. So, yeah, that's another thing we go into, that whole nexus of why would a communist hang out with the white Russian community in Dallas and Guy Bannister and the Cuban exiles in New Orleans. You know, just incredible stuff that you're supposed to swallow and not ask any questions about. In the film, you talk about how Oswald was a person of interest for the CIA for like, you know, four years leading up to the assassination, and they were going through Oswald's mother's mail. Right. Jefferson Morley, who's done a lot of work on uh, the CIA guys and Oswald's relationship with them, James Angleton, George Joannides, David Phillips. You know, he says that in the film. You know, they were they were reading Oswald's mail, even his mother's mail. Okay, which which you know, and of course, they always said after the assassination, we had no relationship with him. We had no interest in Oswald. Okay, which is a bunch of baloney. You know, utter and complete. You know, lies. Okay. Now, there's also, uh, uh, we go into Otto Otepka in the film. Otto Otepka suspected that Oswald was not a genuine defector. So he sent a list to the CIA wanting to know which one of these guys is real, which one of these guys are fake defectors. In other words, which ones are yours? And Oswald was on that list. Well, he should have never done that because, as we talk about in the film, his career went completely downhill. He was demoted. (laughs) He was surveilled. He was literally kicked out of his office 17 days before the assassination. And his safe, which he was still working on the Oswald case, was drilled into on the day that he was kicked out of his office. Now, tell me, now, let me ask you this. Do you think you'd find Otto Otepka's name in the Warren Commission? He certainly should have been called as a witness. He was not. All right. Unbelievable. All right. One final timeout, Jim, and um, we'll come back and we'll have a good uh, 10, 11 minutes to kick it around some more. James DiEugenio wrote the screenplay for JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass debuts tonight on Showtime on Crave TV up here in Canada. Back with more in a few minutes. Stay with us. Exploring theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. All right, back with Jim DiEugenio a few moments yet. Um, Since uh, those more documents came out around 2017, 
what would you say, I mean, in that latest tranche of, of declassified JFK documents, what do you think was the most damning, let's say, to the Warren Commission's case? That, could it be that, anything to do with that, uh, Ruby? The mayor of Dallas, yeah. mm-hmm. who was the brother of the deputy director of the CIA, who was fired by Kennedy, that the mayor was a CIA asset. Cabell. Okay. Cabell, yeah. All right. He was a CIA, and it wasn't, we didn't know that until like four years ago. Okay. <laughs> wow. I think that's kind of important. Okay. Yes. Now, you want to know what makes that even worse? There was a special category that the review board could use to defer declassification. It was called NBR, which means not believed relevant. They put that in NBR. That's why we didn't know about it. Is that incredible? That is incredible. How could it be more relevant? Okay. You know? I mean, but this is the kind of thing that they had to do because they they simply couldn't complete their job in four years. They needed, I think we got Tunheim to say in the film, okay, I don't know if it's in the film, but he said it in his interview, they they should have been there for six years, okay, to make sure they got everything. What the CIA always does is they wait you out. They know that you're only going to be temporary. They know they're going to be there forever. And so that's what they do. They delay and delay and delay. What about? I think this came out in 2017, and I and I, um, I think you are one of the few that spotted these documents. It had to do with evidence that Ruby and Oswald knew each other before they met. You know that fateful day in the Dallas courthouse, uh, and they met on several <laughs> occasions and were seen by witnesses uh, together. Yeah, there was there was a document that I saw that said that Ruby was with Oswald as Ruby was searching for some music amplifiers for his club. And the guy who that was selling the musical equipment told the FBI that he had seen Oswald with Ruby on that day. Okay? Uh they came in together. And they left together. Now, of course, the Warren Commission made up every kind of excuse they could to not have this guy testify. Okay. But it seemed very, very interesting to me, you know, to, to, to say the least. All right. The, the whole idea of uh, Ruby walking down that ramp, okay, and somehow just timing it so perfectly, okay, and going ahead and shooting Oswald in front of 40-some policemen is is so ridiculous. Today, we know it is. I spent a lot of time on this in my book, The JFK Assassination, The Evidence Today, because it's not it, it's not what happened. Oswald, or Ruby did not come through that ramp, that front ramp. Ruby came in a door behind that. And by the way, the Western Union office was like almost like across the street from the back of the police headquarters, all right? Very easy to signal, Ruby, that this is the time to come in. And that's what I believe happened. The, um, 
Oh, before I get to that, this next question, I'm going to go back to the YouTube live chat. MG, well, this is the Lollapalooza. Lollapalooza. Who is responsible for the assassination of JFK? Now, first of all, we have the, 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 the trigger man or trigger people, uh, and then we have the people behind the trigger people. Let's start with who actually fired the fatal head wound. Do you know who that was? Do you have an idea? No, no. I, I don't think anybody really does. I believe that from the evidence that the CIA black ops were in charge of the ground-level operation. I believe that then the Joint Chiefs, like Curtis LeMay, agreed to go along with it by covering up the autopsy. Now, I will also say this, though. There had to be a level even above that, okay, because these guys knew, you know, we need the media in our back pocket to, to carry this black op over, okay? The story is just so ridiculous. We're going to need people like Paley. We're going to need people like the Sarnoffs, et cetera. We're going to need people like Leonard Goldberg at ABC. Okay, they're going to have to. Dan support Rather. Us. What about Dan Rather? Oh yeah, and all these. See, and, and so and so, I, I believe that they got it approved at a level above that, whatever you want to call it, the power elite, the Eastern establishment, the CFR, et cetera, those kind of things. And that's why the media fell into line. What the media did in this case is, is an utter sacrilege to what they're supposed to do. And, and, don't, and don't for a second believe it was not deliberate. It was. Because when CBS wanted to do, in 1967, when they really wanted to do an exploration of the assassination, they were slapped down by upper management. Okay? Frank Stanton and Paley decided they weren't going to do it. They said, no way. We're not going to challenge the Warren Commission. We're going to support the Warren Commission. And they came up with that god-awful show with John McCloy, in which he actually served as a secret consultant on that program, that four-part program in 1967. We talk about that a little in the two-hour version. I think there's more in the four-hour version on that. Uh, yeah, John McCloy, one of the um, members of the Warren Commission. Now, wasn't it McCloy, I'm not sure what his role was back in the 30s, but wasn't he sitting during the the Olympics in Berlin in 1936, wasn't he sitting next to Hitler in the, uh, yeah, at the Olympics? That's true. He was working on a very famous case uh, concerning German espionage in the United States, and he actually did go over to the Olympics, and he was sitting in Hitler's box in 1936. Okay, but, but John McCloy, you know, later on, he's the guy who's responsible for the Japanese internment. Nobody pushed that as hard as McCloy did. You know, and he also was a guy who objected to bombing the railroad lines going into the death camps in Europe. Okay. I mean, this guy was really, there's a good book about him called The Chairman by Kai Bird. He was really, and by the way, he's the one who pushed uh, Carter to let the Shah of Iran into the United States for David Rockefeller. Because David Rockefeller was a friend of the Shahs, and he wanted the Shah in the United States. And McCoy was the major lobbyist on that. So here's a guy who was responsible for... Those three things serving on the goddamn Warren Commission. I mean, come on. You know, that is, <laughs> so. and Dulles, Alan Dulles, to have Alan Dulles. Oh, please. 
on the. I don't want to talk nation. about this guy. Okay, there's a, <laughs> we there's had a, that there's great. A, we sorry, had that just great a quick clip. clip. You I just wanted to talk about this, right? Where Eric Severide asked Dulles, "Yeah, have you ever been responsible for an act of violence in your life?" Yeah. and Dulles <laughs> puffs on scene. his pipe and says, "No." <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, he, yeah. He took about twenty seconds to think about it while he carefully lit his pipe. <laughs> and then there's a scene in the in the film where Kennedy, uh, or sorry, Alan Dulles reaches out to shake Kennedy's hand, and he just turns away. Yeah, isn't it, isn't that terrific? I think that kind yes. of summarizes. Okay, you know the whole yeah. relationship. Uh, people maybe not aware of the fact that it, you know the, the Warren Commission was not like a unanimous decision. It was like four to three, right? You had Hale Boggs. Uh, Richard right. Richard Russell Coop, Jr. Cooper, and John Sherman Cooper all voted against, right? Yes. They were against a single bullet theory. And then they went ahead and they suckered Russell, thinking that it was going to be in the record, his protest, was, and it wasn't. Okay, and that's why Russell turned against the commission. He was the first guy to go ahead and turn on the commission, I believe, in 69 or 70, when he found out what they had done to him. And then Hale Boggs later dis- disappears dis- uh, in, a, in a plane crash, right, I guess. over Alaska. That- but before that, before that, he was even more violent about Hoover when he found out what had, what had happened, what Hoover had done to the Warren Commission. He basically said he lied to us about the rifle. He lied to us about the bullets. He lied to us about everything. He actually said that. Okay, that's how, and then, of course, Cooper told a BBC interviewer, and I think 1971, or a little bit later, that he didn't buy the single bullet theory. Okay, and then when you add in Gerald Ford, you know what we have about Gerald Ford, don't you? About him telling Valerie DeStang, okay, that, no, we knew that an organization had killed Kennedy, we just couldn't find out who it was. So you have four people right there. You know, it's a minority report. <laughs> right, right, exactly. All right, Jim, um, people really need to check it out tonight. It's, um, in many ways, a, I don't know, the culmination of a, a lifetime of work for you to see this up on the screen. Congratulations, JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass premieres across Canada uh, on Showtime, and that's in Crave TV. And I look forward to the uh, the four-hour version coming out in February. We'll have you back on. Thank you so much, Richard. Have a good one. You too. James D. Eugenio. My thanks to Ryan White and Carlos Cagina back next week with a brand new program. Until then, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.